Father in heaven, we come before your throne today realizing that without divine help, we cannot understand your word. So we implore for divine wisdom. I ask, Lord, that you will open our minds and hearts, that we might be willing to receive your word. We are living in trying times, troubled times. The final movements are certainly rapid ones. We want to be ready for what will soon explode on the world scene. So as we study this subject this morning and this afternoon, we ask for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The title of the presentation this morning is Michael Shall Stand Up. This afternoon I will present part two, uh, so I hope that everyone will be able to come back this afternoon so you have the complete picture of what we are going to study. The Seventh-day Adventist Church holds some unique beliefs that as far as I know are not shared by any other Christian denomination. One of those beliefs is in the pre-Advent investigative judgment during which Jesus examines the cases of all of those individuals who have professed the name of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Adventists believe that when this investigative judgment is over, that the kingdom of Jesus will have been made up. The kingdom of Jesus will be complete. And then, three events will transpire once the judgment is over. First of all, the close of human probation. Secondly, coming after the close of probation, the time of trouble such as never has been seen in the history of the world. And finally, at the end of the time of trouble, the second coming of Jesus Christ in power and glory to rescue his people. The view that human probation will close before the second coming of Jesus and that God's people will be here on this earth during the tribulation is another unique belief that Adventists hold. In contrast, evangelical Christians believe that believers will be caught up in the rapture and will spend seven years in heaven with Jesus and then when Jesus returns at his second coming they will come back to this earth with him. And so basically most Christians do not believe that they will go through the time of trouble or through the tribulation. Now in our next two studies together, we are going to study the sequence of events between the close of probation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to take a look at ten snapshots of the close of probation, the time of trouble, and the second coming of Christ. Now someone might wonder, how is it that we can take 10 different passages of scripture and apply them all to the time of trouble? The bottom line is, folks, that the Holy Spirit inspired scripture. And scripture is self-interpreting. In other words, when we have passages in different parts of scripture, that deal with the same theme, we have the right to link together those passages or those verses. It's known as the principle of sola scriptura, the principle that the Bible interprets itself by comparing one text with another text. So we're going to take a look at 10 different scenarios this morning as well as this afternoon, snapshots of what happens between the close of probation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now we are going to take as our primary pattern the first example of this that we find in the Bible. And that is the story of the flood. Now I'm going to summarize some of the aspects of the story of the flood because we don't have time to study the entire scenario of Genesis chapter 6 through 9. I'm just going to say that, as we know, for 120 years, Noah preached a judgment message. 
And his message, of course, was accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because God said, my spirit shall not strive always with man. So when Noah was preaching, the Holy Spirit was striving with the antediluvian population as Noah preached. As Noah preached, decisions were made, either in favor or against the Lord. And when Noah finished preaching his message, his judgment hour message, if you please, the world was divided into two groups. As soon as Noah finished preaching his message, we find an event that is described in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16. If you go with me there, Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16. Noah has finished his message. He stood at the door of the ark making a final call. And now he goes into the ark and we find this event that is described in Genesis 7:16. So, speaking about the animals, those that entered Male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. In other words, the door was closed. Human probation came to an end. But it did not start to rain as soon as the door closed. There was a period between the closing of the door and when destruction came. How long was that period? Seven full days. Started raining actually on the eighth day according to the spirit of prophecy. But seven full days passed between when the door closed and it began to rain. During this period, the faith of those that were inside the ark was severely tested. Imagine one day passes, no rain, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days, no rain. Now Noah and his family believed that it was going to rain because God had said so. But it didn't look like it was going to rain. Their faith was tested. And the spirit of prophecy tells us in Patriarchs and Prophets that outside the ark, for each day that passed, the wicked became more and more violent. That's the word that she uses, violent. God had to protect those whom he had shut in. And so the faith of those inside the ark is tested, and the attitude of those outside the ark becomes more and more violent during this period between the closing of the door and it, when it began to rain. I want you to notice that between the closing of the door and the destruction there was a delay. But then after seven days the Bible tells us that the windows of heaven were opened and the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the entire antediluvian world was destroyed except for the remnant that were inside the ark. They were saved. They were delivered, if you please. Now, Jesus referred to this sequence of events in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and verses 37 to 39. Matthew 24, 37 to 39. There's a very important little word in these verses, the word until. It is used twice in these verses. It says there in Matthew 24, verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and now notice, until the day that Noah entered the ark. So what point of time is marked by the first until? when they actually are in the ark. And now notice what Jesus continues saying. And did not know, who did not know? Those who were outside. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. What didn't they know until the flood came and took them all away? They did not know that they were lost. 
Is Jesus saying that there's going to be a period between the closing of the door and his second coming? Yes, because the passage ends by saying, Jesus speaking, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Are you catching the picture? The door closes. There's a period of trouble for God's people. Their faith is tested. The wicked become more and more violent. At the end of the delay comes the deliverance and the destruction of the wicked. And Jesus said, as it was, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus also described this as him coming as a thief. You know, when we think about Jesus saying that he's coming as a thief, we usually think that Jesus is speaking about the second coming, but he's not. When Jesus says that he's coming as a thief, he's talking about the close of probation. Because the coming of the thief actually has two stages. You say, what do you mean? Well, I want you to imagine a very cold day in December in Loma Linda. Do you have those days here? I imagine at least it gets down into the 40s, doesn't it, in December? <laughs> anyway, it's a cold day, unusual. You work hard, you come home, you have a good supper, sit down to watch the news, and you kind of go to sleep in your easy chair. You say, man, I'm going to go to bed. I'm so tired, I'm so sleepy. So you get, you know, you turn the thermostat down, and you get under the covers, and you're nice and warm. Oh, this is so great. I'm going to have a good night's sleep. And when you're laying there under the covers, you say, oh no, I forgot to lock the door. Oh, I hate to get out from under these covers. They're so nice and warm. I've lived in this house for 25 years and the thief has never come. And so you stay under, you're not watching. So what happens at midnight? When you're sound asleep, the thief comes. And he finds the door unlocked. Wow! He goes and steals your iPhone, hallelujah. <laughs> he steals your television, a double hallelujah. He steals any money that he finds around. And the people in the house are unaware that the thief has come. When do the people in the house discover that the thief came? In the morning when they wake up, but then it is too late. The coming of Jesus as a thief refers to the closing of probation. After that, life will continue on this earth. And most people in the world will be unaware that the thief has come, in other words, that probation has closed. When will they discover that the probation has closed? When Jesus comes on the clouds of heaven. But then it will be too late. Now, in all of the examples that we're going to study, we are going to see six common denominators in every story that illustrates the close of probation, the time of trouble, and the second coming, we're going to notice six common points. Number one, there is always a faithful remnant. Before the flood, who was the faithful remnant? Noah and his family. Number two, there are enemies of the remnant. Who are the enemies of the remnant? The wicked outside the ark. Number three, there is a time of trouble. What was the time of trouble for Noah and his family? The seven days. The faith of the remnant is severely tested. And there is always a delay. But after the delay, God's people are always delivered. So those are the six Common denominators, if you please, in the stories that we're going to study. Number one, a faithful remnant. Number two, enemies of the remnant. Number three, a time of trouble. 
Number four, the faith of God's people severely tested. Number five, a delay. And number six, finally, deliverance by the Lord. Now turn in your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Now let me give you a little bit of context as you're looking for this specific verse. It's a very, very important verse in the book of Daniel. If you look at the previous context, chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, you're going to notice that an entity called the King of the North is coming to destroy God's people. That's the context. In verses 44 and 45, immediately before Daniel 12, verse 1, you have the King of the North coming with the intention of annihilating and destroying God's people. Now the question is, who is the king of the north? Well, the king of the north is described by different names in the Bible. The king of the north is also called the little horn. We studied about the little horn last night. It's also called the beast of Revelation 13. This system is also called the man of sin. We briefly touched on that last evening. It's also called the abomination of desolation. This system is also called the harlot in Revelation 17. And in 1 John 2, it's called the Antichrist. So basically, all of these names are descriptions of the same system, the same power that is going to rise against God's people at the end of time. So the context of Daniel 12, verse 1, is that the wicked, represented by the king of the north, are coming with the intention of destroying God's people. Now, in that context, we want to take a look at Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. There are four points that I want us to notice in this verse. It says, at that time, looking at the context, it's at the time when the king of the north comes to attempt to destroy God's people. Is there going to be a, a death decree against God's people according to Revelation 13? Yes. Whoever does not worship the image of the beast will be what? will be killed. There's a death decree. That's where you have revelation in harmony with what we find in Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12. So it says at that time when the king of the north comes with the intention of destroying God's people, Michael shall what? Stand up. Michael shall stand up. We're going to notice in a minute what that means. Michael shall stand up. Continue saying the great prince who stands watch the NIV says, who stands guard. And the New American Standard Bible says, the one who protects. Why would he have to stand guard and protect? Well, because the king of the north is coming to what? To destroy God's people. And so it says, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And now notice this. After Michael stands up, it says, and there shall be a what? A time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. So does a time of trouble come after Michael stands up? Yes. yes. Is it the worst time of trouble in the history of the world? We're going to come back to this when we notice the scenario of Matthew chapter 24. But then notice that at the end of the time of trouble, we are told that at that time, in the context of the time of trouble, at that time, your people shall be what? Delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. Now, let me ask you this. If God's people are written in the book, when were their names confirmed in the book? This is a clear indication of an investigative judgment that took place before the time of trouble and before the close of probation because their names are written in the book and they are retained there as a result of the investigation. You say, well, why does God have to investigate his people? For a very simple reason. Not everyone who professes Jesus is a true believer. Let me ask you, in the church, uh, is there wheat and tares in the church? Does the separation need to take place at the end of the age? 
Are there uh, wise and foolish virgins in the church? Are there good and bad fish in the church? Yeah, you know, we're fishers of men, right? So Jesus gave the parable of, of, of the fishermen. There are good and bad fish in the church. Are there individuals who say, Lord, Lord, and they cast out demons and they perform miracles and they prophesy and Jesus is going to say to them, even though you did this in my name, I don't know you. So they're counterfeit believers. Are there those in the church that have a form of godliness but don't have the power of godliness? Absolutely. Are they even ministers who disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness? The Apostle Paul says yes. So the reason for the investigative judgment is for God to reveal to the universe who is truly his who claimed his name. And that is revealed in the judgment. And once their name goes through the judgment and they are found worthy because they accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, their name is retained in the book of life. Are you with me? So the four elements are when the king of the north comes to destroy God's people, Michael is going to stand up to defend his people. But there will be a time of trouble, number two, such that were, as has never existed in the history of the world. Number three, at the end of the time of trouble, God's people will be delivered. And number four, those who are delivered have their names written where? In the book. Now we need to find out what it means Michael shall stand up. So we know at what point in time Michael stands up. Now, fortunately, in Daniel 11, we find the same expression earlier in, in the book. So let's go to Daniel 11, verses 2 and 3, to find out what stand up means. And by the way, I'm mostly reading from the New King James Version, but now I'm going to read from the King James, because the King James is consistent in translating the Hebrew word in the same way in Daniel 12, verse 1, and in Daniel 11, and in Daniel 8. So because the King James is, is consistent in the translation, that way we know that there's a connection. Daniel 11 verses 2 and 3 states, And now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia. What does that mean, three kings will yet stand up in Persia? It means that three kings are yet to rule in Persia, to reign in Persia to rise to the throne of the kingdom in Persia. It continues saying, And the fourth shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grisha. And a mighty king shall stand up, and he shall what? Rule with great dominion. So what does stand up mean? It means that, uh, that the king will begin to what? To reign or to rule. And it says he will do according to his will. The same expression is used in Daniel 8, 22. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 22. Speaking about uh, the four divisions of the Grecian Empire. It says, now that being broken, whereas the four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. So once again, stand up means begin to what? To rule or to reign. Let me ask you, when is it that Jesus is going to begin to rule or to reign? We usually think that it's at the second coming. But actually, Jesus begins to rule over his kingdom when his kingdom is complete and made up. When is it that the kingdom of Jesus is complete or made up? Is it when he comes or is it when the judgment ends and probation closes? Let me read from Ellen White, who I always find to be in agreement with Scripture, when we study carefully. See, if we're superficial, we might find contradictions in the writings of Ellen White and in the Bible, but if we're careful, we'll find that the contradiction is in our brain. Notice early writings, page 280. She's speaking about the close of probation. She says, every case had been decided for life or death. While Jesus had been ministering in the sanctuary, the judgment had been going on for the righteous dead 
and then for the righteous living. Now here comes the key part. Christ had received his kingdom. When does Jesus receive the kingdom? Does he receive it on earth or in heaven? Read Daniel 7, folks. The Bible is clear on this. In Daniel chapter 7, it says that the Father moves. He moves, obviously, into the most holy place, and he sits. The judgment begins. And then we're told that Jesus on the clouds comes to where the Father is, and after the judgment, it says that he receives the kingdom. It's in the Bible. And so she states, Christ had received his kingdom, having made the atonement for his people and blotted out their sins. And now, what does it mean when, when Ellen White says Christ had received his kingdom? Here comes the explanation. The subjects of the kingdom were made up. See, we usually think of the kingdom in geographical terms. We usually say, well, the kingdom is the world. No, the kingdom are the subjects of Christ's kingdom. That's what the kingdom is. So Ellen White explains that receiving the kingdom means that the subjects of the kingdom were made up. That's early writings, page 280. Ellen White also explains what it means that their names are found in the book. He, I read, Christ says of the overcomer, I will not blot out his name of the book of life. The names of all those who have once given themselves to God are written in the book of life and their characters are now passing in review before him. Angels of God are weighing moral worth. They are watching the development of character in those now living to see if their names can be retained in the book of life. So in the judgment, it is decided whether names are retained or not in the book of life. By the way, our names are written in the book of life when we claim Jesus as Savior. At baptism, Ellen White explains that that at the moment when our name is written in the book of life. Purpose of the judgment is to see if we truly were subjects of Jesus Christ. So at the end of time, is God going to have a faithful remnant? Yes. yes. Is there going to be an enemy that wants to destroy the remnant? Absolutely, the king of the north and his cohorts. Is there going to be a time of trouble such as never has been seen? Yes. Is God going to delay to deliver his people? Yes, the whole time of trouble, folks. Will the faith of God's people be severely tested during this period? Absolutely. But will God's people finally be delivered? Yes, that is the good news. You know, let's not focus on the time of trouble. Although we know that a terrible time of trouble is coming, let's know that after the time of trouble, Christ is going to intervene to deliver his people. And I was mentioning last night, you know, many Adventists say, uh, wow, I hope that the Lord lays me to rest before the time of trouble. I personally don't feel that way. What a glorious privilege to vindicate the truth of God in the last days and to bring many souls to listen to the loud cry and to join God's remnant people. What a tremendous privilege. You know, we shouldn't say, oh, we, I hope the Lord lays me to rest. We should say, I hope the Lord gives me strength to go through and to be a witness for him. Now let's go to our second story. Where does the expression time of trouble actually originate? It originates in Genesis. The story is in Genesis 32. So go with me to Genesis 32. We're going to read a few verses in a few moments, but let me just tell you the story. Jacob was returning home after 20 years of exile because he had stolen the birthright from his brother and he had lied to his father. He had committed a grave sin. So for 20 years he was in exile. But now he's returning home. And as he's returning home, he hears the report that his brother Esau, who by the way, according to Genesis 27, 41, said, I will find Jacob and I will kill him. He's the enemy. So he hears that Esau is coming with 400 men with the intention of destroying Jacob and his family. 
It goes without saying that Jacob and his family were totally defenseless against 400 men armed to the teeth. And jo Jacob feared that his brother would destroy him and his family and that God would not protect him because of his great sin that he had committed 20 years earlier. He wanted the assurance that his sin had been forgiven so that he could claim the protection of God. And so Jacob now goes by the brook Jabbok alone by himself and he pours out his heart in prayer to God. He says, I am not worthy to even come before you. But please, give me the assurance that my sin has been forgiven, that you're going to protect us from our enemy. Let's read about it in Genesis chapter 32 and beginning with verse 10. Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. I am totally unworthy, he's saying. I cannot demand that you protect us. He continues saying, for I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. And now here comes a key word that we're going to find very frequently. We found it in Daniel 12, verse 1, didn't we? God's people will be what? Delivered. We're going to, that's a key word. And this afternoon we're going to unpack that word. Very, very important. He says what in verse 11? Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. So he's pouring out his heart in prayer to God. I'm not worthy. I sinned, but I need the assurance of the forgiveness of sin and that my covenant with you is still binding and that you're going to protect us from the enemy. And suddenly, a mysterious person comes and begins struggling with Jacob. At first, Jacob thinks that this is an enemy, perhaps sent by his brother. But as he struggles, he realizes that this is no common, ordinary human being he realizes that he is struggling with the angel of the covenant. He is struggling with the angel of the Lord, Yahweh's angel, none less than Jesus Christ himself. And you say, well, is Jesus a common angel? Jesus is not a common angel. Jesus is God. But in the Old Testament, he's spoken of as the angel of the Lord, the angel of the covenant. And so he realizes that he's struggling with the angel of covenant. And so it's about to dawn, and the angel says, let me go, because it's dawning. And Jacob hangs on, even though he's in excruciating pain, because, uh, you know, his hip has been dislocated by the angel. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. You give him the assurance of forgiveness. And the angel once again says, let me go. It's dawning, he says, no way. I will not let you go until you bless me. He's agonizing and praying. And the end of the story is that the angel blessed him there and changed his name because his character had changed. Gave him a new name. Was Jacob delivered from the wrath of his brother? Yes. yes, he was. Let's read about this in Genesis 32, 24 to 29. Genesis 32, 24 through 29. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Don't be too worried about the word man. Angels in the Bible sometimes are called men. Gabriel, Daniel says, that man who spoke to me in the vision at the beginning, because they appear like men. So it says, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, that is when the angel saw that, uh, that, the, that he did not prevail against Jacob, it says he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. 
And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. Who was that mysterious being? Genesis does not clearly tell us who it was. But we have two clear indications that it was the same angel that's mentioned in Daniel 12, verse 1. You say, where does the Bible say that it was an angel? Go with me to Hosea chapter 12 and verse 4. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 4. We are told there, that's one of those books that's difficult to find. It's kind of shuffled there in between all of the minor prophets there in the Old Testament. It says there, speaking about this experience, yes, he struggled with the, what did he struggle with? The angel. And what? Prevailed. He what? He wept and sought favor from him. Did he get favor from him? He most certainly did. By the way, do you know that that angel was, was God? So the angel was God. You say, I don't know that the angel was God. What did Jacob call the place where he struggled with, it, with this being? He called this place, notice Genesis 32 verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. And then he explains why. Do you know what Peniel means? It means face of God. He explains why he calls it face of God. He says, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Who was the angel? God. He was the angel of the covenant. He was Michael. That great archangel that stands watch over the children of God's people. So let me ask you, do we have all of the elements in this story? Do we have a faithful remnant? Jacob. Does he have an enemy? Yes. Does he go through a severe time of anguish and trouble? Yes. Does God delay in answering him? Yes. Not to the very breaking of the day. Was his faith tested? Did he have to hang on? Yes. But finally, was he delivered from the time of trouble? that he was. Are God's people going to repeat that experience? Read the chapter, The Time of Trouble in Great Controversy. Ellen White dedicates several pages to talk about the experience of Jacob and she applies it to God's people at the end of time. Folks, we need to have the assurance of the forgiveness of sin during that period because the devil is going to say, your sin is too great for God to forgive it. That's exactly what he was saying to Jacob. But Jacob said, I don't care what I feel. I believe that God has forgiven my sin. We have to have the assurance of the forgiveness of sin. Now, do you know where the actual expression, the time of Jacob's trouble comes from? It comes from Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 7. Let's go to Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. Now let me give you a little bit of background of what Jeremiah 30 is dealing with. In Jeremiah chapter 30, the faithful remnant is Israel. The people of Israel. The enemy of the remnant is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is about to come to the city to destroy the city and there will be a remnant that will be preserved. Those who sigh and cry because of the abominations that are being done in the city. So you have a remnant, those who sigh and cry. You have an enemy, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians that are coming against God's people. And God's people, we're going to find in the, these verses, are going through a severe period of trouble and anguish. In fact, do you know how long God delayed in answering the pleas of his people? Seventy years. 
they were in captivity, in anguish, and in suffering. Was the faith of Israel severely tested during the period of the captivity? Just read the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. In some of the passages of Scripture, their faith was severely tested. Some of them felt that God had forsaken them because He allowed them to go into Babylonian captivity. And they were still there. There was a delay. But were God's people finally delivered from the captivity? Yes, when Cyrus came from the east and Babylon fell and God's people were delivered and they were able to go back to their land. Now let's go to Jeremiah chapter 30 and begin reading at verse 5 so that you see the biblical scenario of this experience that I've just described. Jeremiah 30 and verse 5. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child, you know, the pain and anguish is so great that it's like if a man was in labor pains. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor? And all faces turn pale. Is this really severe anguish, folks? Ooh. They're about to go into Babylonian captivity. Verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. The what? Here's the expression, where it comes from. The time of what? Jacob's trouble. By the way, Jacob was already dead. He'd been dead a long time. <laughs> and it is called the time of Jacob's trouble. But here's the good news. But he shall be saved out of it. That is delivered out of it. Was Israel delivered? from Babylon, from their enemies, yes, as God's people will be at the end. Verse 8, For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, that is of the enemy, and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. By the way, David had been dead for a long time too. This is not talking about David reigning over them. It's talking about Jesus, the son of David, reigning over them. So once again, do you have all of the same elements? Do you have a faithful remnant? Yes. Do you have enemies of the remnant? Do you have a terrible time of trouble and anguish? Is there a delay in God answering their pleas? Is their faith tested? Yes. Are they finally delivered? Absolutely. Now we have time maybe for one more, and then we'll deal with the rest. I wanted to finish uh, two more, but we only have time for one more. Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24 is a very significant uh, passage that deals with the tribulation and deliverance. I'll summarize what takes place immediately before the verses that we're going to read. The abomination of desolation has been set up. In Matthew 24, the abomination of desolation at the end time, by the way, is the Sunday law. I did a series on Matthew 24 where I showed the whole historical fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem, the eagles of Rome, and the, the emblem that they had on their standards, and how at the end of time, Ellen White applies it to the United States and its eagle and the Sunday law. So the abomination of desolation is set up, and then you find that God's people are going to flee, it says, because they're going to be persecuted. And then when they flee, we find these verses in Matthew 24, 21, and 22. For then there will be great tribulation. And now comes an allusion to Daniel 12. Such as has not been been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Is there any connection with Daniel 12, verse 1? Absolutely. And unless those days were what? Shortened. No flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, is there a remnant? By the way, are they Sabbath keepers? Pray that your flight 
might not be in winter or on the Sabbath day. Those who flee are Sabbath keepers, according to Jesus. Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. There will be a delay. But the delay will be shortened. Because if it wasn't shortened, there would be no one left alive. Now, are God's people going to be delivered? Absolutely. Let's go a little further down in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, are God's people going to go through the tribulation? Very clearly in all these passages, God's people go through the tribulation. So why would God spare the end time generation from going through the tribulation by rapturing them away to heaven? They will be protected in the midst of the tribulation. In the time of trouble, but they will not be spared the time of trouble. And there's a terrible time of trouble coming, folks. So we better learn not to depend on everything we have now. That's the first story we're going to begin with this afternoon. The story of the, you know, they call it the parable of the unjust uh, master. But I call it the parable of the persistent widow. It's an end time parable. Beautiful illustration of what we're talking about. You know, but, but people say, uh, you know, evangelicals say, we're not going to be going through the tribulation. You say, well, Pastor Bo, why do you talk about the time of trouble? You know, talk to us about right now how everything is good. <laughs> Don't be an alarmist. Don't scare us. That's what, that's what many people tell me. You know. Let me ask you. If you knew that there was an earthquake coming to California... To Loma Linda, and you could know in advance, a week in advance, would you want the powers that be to let you know that it's coming? Or would you rather say, no, let's let things be, let's not ruffle their feathers, you know, let's, let's, not, let's let them live in peace. <laughs> if there is a time of trouble coming such as never has been before, we need to prepare. So God says, you know, study these passages and go through this experience of Jacob. Ellen White says that if Jacob had not trusted the Lord before this, he would have never been able to go successfully through the time of trouble. We need to prepare. We need to start, we need to start folks, considering what we have, our houses, our homes, our money in the bank, and our comforts. We need to understand that all of that is going to be lost. And we cannot depend on any of that stuff. Because the more stuff we have, the more the Lord is going to have to burn. <laughs> is that true? You know it's true. You know, let's, I'm not saying that just, you know, throw everything away and become homeless. No, 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 God doesn't tell us to do that. But we have far more than what we need. We could far, you know, we could take what we have and we could invest it in God's cause. And then it will produce eternal dividends. Because souls in the kingdom that will shine throughout eternity. And Ellen White saw many people, many Adventists in the time of trouble. This is a little time of trouble before the close of probation. She says, how many I saw saying, oh, how sorry I am that I did not unload all of this extra stuff that I had and invested in the cause of God. Now I can't buy or sell. I can't do anything with it. Here's the good news, the liberation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Wow, I'm looking forward to that day. Amen. That's our blessed hope. That's what we need to be talking about. Jesus is coming soon. Amen. Prepare to meet him.
Do you believe Jesus is coming soon? Yes. Does that hope burn within your hearts? Yes. You know, it was announced that I'm pastor of Fresno Central Church. Actually, I retired in July of last year. Still a member there, still preach there. But now I'm full-time president of Secrets on Seal. I'm still working full-time. I haven't retired yet. And, uh, you know, I don't find any place in the Bible that talks about retirement. <laughs> you know, we need to occupy until he comes. So as long, as long as the Lord gives us health and strength, hey, let's go for it. Let's not say, okay, you know, now I'm going to retire and I'm going to go off and play golf. That's going to do souls a lot of good. To shoot 80 or whatever it is. So folks, let's prepare. Jesus gave several words of counsel. He said, watch. Stay awake. Pray such you as, never, as you have never prayed before. Occupy until I come. Be ready, Jesus says. Because probation will close at an hour that we do not expect. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we've studied some tribulation passages today, not with the intent of being afraid, but with the intent of knowing that we must prepare and knowing that you will deliver your people, everyone who is found written in the book. I ask, Lord, that you will bless every person gathered here today. Oh, Lord, help us to understand that time is winding down. The, rap the final movements are rapidly occurring. Enter our hearts and our minds and help us to lay our priorities before you and to make them in harmony with your will, not in harmony with our will. We thank you, Lord, for having spoken to us this morning. And we ask that you will take these words and plant them in our minds and hearts that they might affect our daily life. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.